week, I sort of imagined that there might be people out there as the power was out, lights were off, and all that kind of stuff. Thank you for uh, flexing with us uh, for those who were here and for those who were not here and were hoping to be able to watch it online. Thank you for your patience as you were not able to because we were not able to uh, record it. Uh, but we are glad to be here today. And uh, before we get to our passage in Romans uh, chapter 16, so if you want to be turning there in your Bibles, you can maybe save some time there. But we are um, highlighting a couple of different books. Stephen talked about a couple of books in the Resource, cent uh, resource Center, and here's another one that, uh, that I recommend. I just um, plowed through this uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's called Fault Lines by Vodi Bauckham, and uh, it is about, uh, the, the subtitle here is The Social Justice Movement and Evangelicalism's Looming Catastrophe. So if that doesn't catch your attention, uh, I don't know what will. But um, Vodi Bauckham, though he's known as a um, as a pastor, and now he's a missionary and working with a university in Africa and whatnot. He is, by training, a sociologist. And uh, so I think one of his bachelor's degrees, I think he has a couple, <clears throat> is in sociology. And so this is sort of his field. And so he's laying out the social justice movement. He's talking about things like critical race theory, about intersectionality, and things that may or may not be on your radar, but, uh, but they ought to be. Because if, if they're not now, they will be in the future those things will be addressed. And so he lays out uh, from his own really experience and his own growing up and coming to Christ and uh, kind of the world that he was involved in and, uh, and his sociological studies, etc., in discussing issues of Marxism and neo-Marxism and how those sort of influences have played into and are involved in the area of critical race theory, intersectionality, and such things. And so um, he is pointing out in this book, Fault Lines, that, that we as Christians need to be aware of these things and prepared to think critically about what we're hearing on these topics because um, uh, CRT and intersectionality and things like that are uh, having a large impact and it's a large discussion within the church. And many, many churches that are utterly unprepared for such things find themselves caught off guard uh, with these kind of topics. And so I recommend this book, Fault Lines. It just came out in April of this year, so it's very fresh. And uh, so I would encourage you for that. It's in the back. I think we only have 10 of them. So don't stampede when the service is over. Don't leave before I'm done praying, please. But when you do leave, go grab a book. I encourage you to do so. We are in Romans and uh, chapter 16, and we are nearing the end of our book. I know it's hard for some of you to believe, and, uh, but we are going to cover just one paragraph today. We are in chapter 16 and uh, starting in verse 17 through verse 20. The Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. 
that accomplishes so many things in our lives, that by it you teach us truth about yourself and about us and about how we can know you. By it we learn what it means to be Christians, to walk as Christians, to hope as Christians. And by it we are warned of those who would come and steal this hope, who would come and change this message and change what you have taught us from your word. We are grateful for such a warning, and we, in our time and in our day, with the questions and the difficulties that we face, we want to be wary, we want to be wise, we want to be on the alert and, uh, and mark those who uh, would be troublemakers for the church. Father, we are grateful that You have communicated Yourself to us, that You have not left us alone to fumble around and imagine what You might be like, whether You exist and how we might know You, but instead You have told us plainly in Your Word. We rejoice in that truth. We rejoice in Christ, the one Your Word points to. Father, we are grateful we have peace with You, and we ask that during this time today Your Spirit would be at work in our hearts as we, as we have Your text open in front of us, as Your Word is proclaimed. Do Your work, Your surgery within us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. When uh, my wife and I moved to Russia in 19, uh, 19, suddenly that sounded very long ago, but it was indeed 1996 when uh, we moved to Russia the first time, and, and uh, many of you know, many of you recall that, and while we were there, we were there for just one year, and of course, 96 was not long after the, the uh, Soviet Union had, had collapsed, and, and uh, so we went and lived in Russia, and it was a unique opportunity for ministry, for the gospel in that place that had had really the gospel sort of forcibly removed for about 70 years. And while we were there, one of the things we were doing, we were lay missionaries, working with lay missionaries, and none of us had prepared for this. None of us had uh, given our lives to um, thinking that we were going to be missionaries in Russia or overseas or whatever. We were still in college. And one of the things we were doing in leading these Bible studies was uh, facilitating Bible studies. They didn't even want us to say we were leading Bible studies. And the idea, the goal for what they had in mind is they, they wanted uh, these Russians who had never had a Bible before, many of them had never even seen one, maybe on the black market during the uh, latter days of the Soviet Union, but many of them had not even seen a Bible, and they uh, wanted to get folks into and engaged in God's Word. And so we would have these Bible studies, and we would gather in in someone's flat, someone's home, and we would have the Bible open, and we would ask questions, and, and we would all sort of interact. And so the idea of facilitating a Bible study that, that, uh, uh, that they wanted us to do was to try and engage and try and draw in people uh, to interact with the text. And so the question that kind of went around a lot was sort of, what does this mean to you? And uh, so that, that was sort of um, the way things were arranged there. We didn't have Bible study leaders. We didn't have uh, someone teaching a Bible study. We had this discussion with the text open in front of us. And uh, so I'll come back to that a little bit later on, but that should raise some red flags for you. That should cause you to think about uh, what this Bible study uh, was like because it really opens the door if ministry is, is uh, unwary like that was, it really opens the door for troublemakers. And uh, that's just my uh, shorthand term here for uh, these people that we're reading about in Romans chapter 16, these troublemakers. 
Paul has been laying out for us the gospel, and he spent chapter after chapter laying out, explaining the details of the gospel and the logic of the gospel and how it all works. And then he moved from that to say the gospel has application in our lives, and this is what it means, this is what it looks like to, uh, for those who believe the gospel. Uh, this is what it looks like, chapter 12 and 13 and 14 and 15. He's talked about those sorts of things, and he's, uh, he's trying to demonstrate, to uh, convey to them what it is that this Christian life looks like. Well, now, after having greeted all of these people and, and uh, that we talked about a couple weeks ago in the beginning of chapter 16, now he comes to this point where he's giving a warning. He's, he's, he's cautioning them about a group of people, about a certain type of people who might wish to come and prey upon such a church. He talks about these troublemakers and the trouble that they make. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. What is the trouble that they make? Well, first of all, they create division. They create division. Division within the body or within a family can cause real damage, can bring great friction, can cause break in relationship, even severe break in relationship. And ultimately, divisions within a church can ultimately lead to that that very frightening concept uh, that happens often, actually, of the church split. And so these troublemakers, when they come into town, they bring division with them. It's one of the things they do. They bring in different types of stumbling blocks. A stumbling block, of course, is something that you trip over, right? And biblically speaking, it's something that uh, causes another person to sin or causes another person to, to fall, to crash in their faith. That would be a stumbling block, and it can take all kinds of different varieties, uh, but it's something that someone trips over and falls flat on their face in their Christian life. Usually, uh, we think about that being a, a temptation to sin, and so we talked about alcohol, and we talked about some of these issues back a couple of chapters earlier that uh, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians viewed a little bit differently, and, and uh, alcohol and, and meat sacrificed idols and, and those sorts of things could cause one or the other to, to stumble and fall. Well, that's normally what we think of when we talk about a stumbling block. But basically, a, a stumbling block is... Uh, something that causes someone to fall flat on their face, something we put before another person that trips them up. And we usually think of causing another person to sin, maybe by our actions, but we can do so also by our words, by the things that we say we can trip people up. So they bring with them division. They bring with them stumbling blocks. But I want to point out before we move on too far that, that there are also good stumbling blocks, good stumbling blocks that trip people up not to cause them to sin, but to trip them up. For example, Jesus is called a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. A rock of offense, a stumbling stone. That's in Romans chapter 9. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that preaching Christ crucified is a stumbling block, that the cross itself is a stumbling block to Jews in Galatians chapter 5. So, there is such a thing as a good stumbling block. To lay Christ before the Jews, 
to, to preach Him, to proclaim His crucifixion, caused some to stumble. They couldn't get over it. Of course, their stumbling was the problem. It's not Christ who was the problem. So there is such a thing as a good stumbling block, and Christ Himself is that good stumbling block. But there is also such a thing as a good kind of division. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but Jesus said in Luke chapter 12 and verse 51 that He didn't come to bring peace. He rather came to bring division. Meaning there would be a division between those who believe in Him, submit to Him, as opposed to those who don't. There would be a division where before there had been a whole of Judaism, for example, suddenly Jesus comes on the scene and now there's a division within Judaism that Christ Himself brings. In fact, He said in verse 49 of, of that chapter in Luke chapter 12 that He came to cast fire on earth, All right? This is the kind of division that Jesus might bring. So there, there won't be peace among men at all as long as Jesus is proclaimed. Okay, so there will be some sort of division, and it's not all bad division. Paul, in fact, writing to Corinth, said that he knew that in their midst there were divisions in the church in Corinth. And this is what he says, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 18. If there is error whether it's of doctrine or whether it's error of behavior, don't you want to be divided from it? Don't you want to be separate from it? That's what Paul was observing about the church in Corinth is that, yeah, there were all kinds of divisions, and some of those were very bad divisions that he will address. And he's about to address those in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But he says, in some sense, I understand that there are divisions, there need to be divisions so that truth can be divided from error, so that those who are genuine can be divided from those who are not genuine. So there is a, a good kind of stumbling block. There is a good kind of division, but the division in the stumbling stones that these bring is not that good kind. It is the painful and destructive kind that we need to be on the lookout for to be able to defend against. And notice, I, I want you to notice here their opposition to sound doctrine, right? They, they cause divisions, they create obstacles, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. There's a doctrinal element going on here. Our, our doctrine determines our actions. What we truly, actually believe shows itself in our behavior. So I don't want to draw too fine a line between that concept of of uh, a division doctrinally and division practically, but seems like what's going on here is more of a doctrinal issue. The kinds of division and the kinds of doctrinal uh, or the kinds of stumbling blocks that they were putting in the way of people were those that were brought in by teaching a doctrine foreign to the apostolic doctrine, foreign to the doctrine that the church at Rome was founded upon, which was the gospel itself. Now, this kind of false teaching that they might bring in might take any number of, of uh, different forms. If you think about the New Testament, sometimes we look back at the New Testament era and we long for those days when, you know, the apostles were still around and, and things like that, and, and those must have been the days when there was no controversy, no error, and no, uh, nothing like that to cover. Well, 
If you read your New Testament, you see that nearly every book was written because of controversy, was written because of some sort of false teaching. So it wasn't really uh, a utopia in that sense. They, they had doctrinal error. It's just that they had Paul on the scene or Peter on the scene to resolve those sorts of things. But the New Testament that we have comes about as a result of disputation on these topics and those questions and those problems being resolved by the, uh, by the apostles as they wrote the Word of God in contradiction to or to clarify regarding points of controversy or difficulty. And these people, when they come to town, they will bring an opposition that is rooted in a false doctrine. They are opposing sound doctrine that the church at Rome was founded upon. And so we need to pay attention here that the, the problems they cause are contrary to the doctrine that they've been taught. And I want to look here just for a moment at their, their motivations and their methods. Why did they do this, these troublemakers who would come to town? What was it they were doing? How did they accomplish it when they came to town? First, I want to look at their motives. They serve their own appetites rather than serving Christ. Now, that appetite could take lots of forms. Sometimes serving our own appetite means that we become drunkards and gluttons and, and lead a loose lifestyle, right? That's serving our own appetites. But other people have more refined kinds of appetites. Maybe what they want out of the deal is power and money. They're not looking to live a loose lifestyle. They just want to, you know, pad, pad their, own, their own wallet. And so serving their appetite might mean living a good lifestyle, being upright before men, etc., but they're, but they're getting rich off the deal, right? They're serving themselves in some way. And for other people, it could be just the approval of men. That's their appetite. What they really want most in life is not drunkenness, not loose living. It's not even a lot of money. It's just to be respected. And so they arrange their ministry in such a way that all things point to them and build them up. These are just some options of what it might be to serve our our own appetites, and these people, when they come to town, they will serve their own appetites rather than serving Christ. Rather than serving Christ. That's their, that's their motivation. You can look all kinds of different ways, but this is why they were doing it. The warning is that these troublemakers, if they aren't already in Rome, they're probably even now scheming about how to go to Rome. Rome's a rich city, and remember Paul has said a couple times already, the church at Rome is renowned for their faith. The fact that there was a growing Christian community at Rome of all places put them on the radar for opportunists, people who want, might, might want to benefit in some way from the church there. And so that's the warning, is to watch out for these kinds of people that's their motivation. They, when they see an opportunity, they want to leap on it. They want to benefit themselves. And their methods, we talked about their motives, uh, their methods should be familiar to us, by the way. We watched a video uh, in the evening service not long ago about the charlatans connected with the Word of Faith movement and all of that kind of stuff, and there is a very smooth speech. There is a way of insinuating yourself into a, a person's uh, desires and their own thinking so that, so that the charlatan ends up benefiting, right? 
using, using fancy words or the right kind of manipulation to get a congregation or numbers of congregations to uh, do what they want them to do. There's manipulation involved. Smooth talk. They're masters of smooth and pleasing talk. They're flatterers, meaning that they will say whatever it takes to manipulate people into feeling good about themselves and feeling good about them, the speaker, so that they can get their way. Smooth talkers, flatterers, masters of communication in such a way that you just think, boy, that was wonderful. I'd love to listen more and do what that guy says. They're flatterers. Now, it, it will not surprise all of you, though hopefully it'll surprise some of you, but uh, um, I am not the most uh, smooth with my words. I, I'm not um, given to flattery necessarily, and my poor wife, who is not here to defend herself, in our early days when we were just getting together, when we just got married, I would say something nice about her. I, I speak nicely to my wife and about my wife and, and compliment her, etc., and she would say, oh, I'm so flattered. And I said, oh, no, I, I'm not trying to flatter you. I'm not trying to flatter you. Because in my mind, I'm thinking flattery is a manipulative expression of appreciation so that I can get you to feel a certain way so that I can benefit somehow, right? In my mind, I'm thinking flattery like this. My poor wife just meant, thank you. And so it's still a joke to this day about uh, my compliments and that they're not flattery, okay? I don't, you know, unless you feel good about what I just said. <laughs> oh, my poor wife. She is indeed a saint. And she had to get used to that because I was thinking like this about flattery. In the end, these people's goal is to deceive the unsuspecting. Take advantage of the unsuspecting. They don't, they don't wear their team jersey when they come to, down, uh, to town that says, you know, deceiver, right? You can't, you can't see that on uh, the outward appearance. They're smooth. They come in looking like us or maybe a little bit better than us in some way that would cause us to want to be like them. They're deceivers, and they're deceiving the unwary. That is what they are for. That is what they are after. They want to get in the door. They want to get into your trust. And so, we ought to respond by, secondly, protecting ourselves. Look at verse 19. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. I want to notice just a couple of things about these people and how we should treat them, okay? First of all, we need to turn away troublemakers. Turn away troublemakers. Uh, look up at verse 17. I, I passed by it, did so on purpose. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out, to keep an eye out for, to be wary of, to observe. The Greek word is the idea of scope, like to, to, to mark. To see it, mark it, pay attention to it. So mark them. Identify them in your mind. Watch out for those who would cause divisions, etc., for these troublemakers. That means that you've got to be aware that such people exist, and you've got to have an eye out for what their methods are like. Right? We can't just be naive on this topic. So he says, first of all, mark them. But second of all, he says, avoid them. 
Look at verse, the end of verse 17. He says, avoid them. Turn away from them. Don't allow your, yourself or your family or your circle or your church to be influenced by these people. In a church setting, of course, that means turning them away from influence here. That, that might mean sending them down the road, certainly keeping them quiet, right? We want to recognize these troublemakers when they show up. We want to recognize knowing their methods, knowing what their, what their motivation is. We want to mark them. We want to deal with them appropriately and not let them be the influencers of us, okay? And these people, as we read about them, they are not just those who come in with different opinions about things. They have different opinions on purpose. They want to benefit somehow from being here. Mark these troublemakers Turn away these troublemakers, avoid them, but continue in obedience. I love the way Paul talks about the church there. He says, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. You are obedient. Continue to be obedient. That's an admirable thing. You, you have, uh, in large measure, it was an obedient church at Rome. They were growing. They were doing many things they ought to do. This wasn't like the church in Galatia where he had to write with harsh words to correct them about their false doctrine or like in Corinth where he had to write with harsh words to correct them about their crazy lifestyle. For the most part, this is an obedient church. For the most part, this is a church that has sound doctrine. And he wants them to continue in that obedience, to continue to walk with Christ. He's, he's sure that they are not like these troublemakers. He's not writing them with a, with a questionnaire to say, now, a troublemaker does and says this, do you do and say that? Oh, okay. Now, a troublemaker has this kind of motivation and looks like this. Is that like you? Are you a troublemaker? That's not his concern. He knows they're not. He has every confidence in them as a church. They are a growing and maturing church, and he wants them to continue and being that way. But he also wants them to be aware that exactly such a church has a target on their back for these people who would come and take advantage of them, these people who would come and find a way to twist doctrine, come and find a way to, to uh, twist their teaching or their influence, insinuate themselves in such a way that they can uh, feed their own appetites out of that. And so he wants them, thirdly, to be discerning. Be discerning. They are, by and large, an obedient church, but that uh, that. that brings them on to the radar of people who would want to take advantage of them. He says, he says, for your obedience is known to all, so that I, I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Wise about what is good, innocent as to what is evil. Paul's been teaching them more and more in these last couple of chapters of what it means, what it looks like to be obedient. He wants them to be wise in regard to good, but He wants them to be innocent with regards to evil. Innocent, uh, like He said actually in Titus chapter 1, He says something similar. He says, to the pure, all things are pure. He, he wants them to be innocent in regard to evil. In other words, He wants them not to have personal experience with, personal taint from evil. You know, they, he wants them to know about it intellectually. That's where we're going. 
He doesn't want them to have personal experience with evil. He wants their church to be such that no accusations that the enemy could make against them would ever stick because they're an upright church. They're a holy church. They're obedient. They're innocent in regards to evil, but they're not supposed to be naive. There's a difference between being naive and being innocent. There's a difference between those two. Now, usually a small child, and I have enough children to know that small children are sinners also, just like us, but there is a sense of innocence with a child. They've not experienced that. They've not been taken advantage of like that, usually. They, they're, they're ignorant of the world. They don't know how things work because their life is about this big. Their, their circle is, is very small. This isn't always the case. I'm aware of that. But typically speaking, a young child is innocent because they don't know about evil. They don't understand it, meaning they are also naive. They're, they often don't even know that it exists out there. We were just talking yesterday about a, uh, a story that was uh, told in our family to caution Brennan. If you've, if you've met little Brennan before, and, and many of you have, probably because he ran under your feet and almost tripped you, but a story was told to him that some of the siblings were like, why would you tell such a scary story to that child? Well, it's because he needs to know in some cases there are consequences that can hurt you for certain things. You don't just wait until he learns it by experience, by hard knocks, you caution and say, you know, if you do that, if you continue to do that, this kind of thing can happen, right? You don't want the child to continue being naive, but you want that child to remain innocent of those evils, innocent of that sin, but to be aware that it is there, that it might be lurking. Naivete means that that you are unaware of the presence or dangers of evil, and therefore you are unprepared to recognize it, unprepared to defend against it, unprepared to deal with it when it does happen. That's the idea that we, we uh, say the little phrase, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. The idea is I was able to be fooled the first time because I was naive, and I better learn from it so as not to be fooled a second time. That one is on me. And so, Paul is writing and he's pointing out these people who will come with a different kind of doctrine that will lead to uh, this kind of division, that will lead to these kinds of stumbling blocks. It will lead to a, a poisoning of the doctrine that they believe. And he wants them to be on the lookout for that. He wants them to be wary of that. And the question is, Okay, so we're supposed to have our eyes peeled for sound doctrine, which, by the way, in our day and age, that's not very popular, right? I mean, we are a very accepting world and growing ever more so, right? That, that we're, we're to be tolerant of other views, right? And that definition of what tolerant means is changing. It has changed from the notion that, yeah, I will, you know, I, I'm fine existing, coexisting with you having a different opinion, but I think it's wrong, but you're allowed to have it. That used to be tolerance. Now tolerance is, oh, you have that different opinion, so either we cannot express our opinions or I must agree with your opinion if it's on certain political issues. That's how we've redefined tolerance, but 
Uh, so in our day and age, we, we live in the reality that, that doctrinal clarity and, and specificity is, is passe. It's going to be problematic. But I was reading the other day in Samuel Miller, and uh, this is a little book called The Pastor, and here's a sermon by him. He wrote it in about 1829, I think. He says, we cannot indeed undertake to pronounce how much knowledge of sound doctrine is necessary to salvation or how much error is sufficient to destroy the soul. But we know from the nature of the case and especially from the Word of God that all error, like poisons, is mischievous and, of course, ought to be avoided. I know not, indeed, how large a quantity of a given deleterious drug might be necessary in a particular case to take away life. But of one thing there can be no doubt, that it is madness to sport with it, and that the less we take of it, the better. As nothing but nutritious food will support the animal body, meaning the physical body, so nothing but Zion's provision, which is truth, can either commence or sustain the life of God in the soul of man. In other words, we are to pursue truth in doctrine, be wary of and aware that there is contrary doctrine, and know how to draw the line between the two. And so, our first point of application, I believe, is here. We need to be discerning of doctrinal error. Be discerning of doctrinal error. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that we have the Resource Center. The books that we recommend there are intended to educate you doctrinally, to help you understand and think about different doctrinal things perhaps than you've thought about before, and in helpful ways. And so the Resource Center heads that direction. Charles Hodds puts it this way. He says, you must not only avoid doing evil, but be careful that you do not suffer or allow evil. You see, the, the church at Rome was busy about doing good and valuing good, and they should have been. They were doing right and good things to do that. But he's saying you need to be aware also of not only what is right, but therefore what is wrong, whether it's in practice or whether it's in doctrine. In other words, a church without theological discernment is like a body without an immune system. We must have, we must develop, we must grow in doctrinal discernment. Finally, he doesn't close there. He moves on to verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We have God's gracious deliverance. First of all, I want to comment on God and peace. He said this a couple of times, but here he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. There's a connection between God and true peace. If you think all the way back to the garden, right, you think about God creating the world and then populating it with people and things, and what did He do on the seventh day? He rested. There was peace. Everything was in order. Everything was functioning the way it ought to. Everything was just as it ought to be, and so he rested. God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all the work that He had done. That's, 
That's the world God created. But of course, that's Genesis 1 and 2. And in Genesis 3, you see that peace being shattered, that peace being threatened and disturbed by the entrance of sin into the experience of, uh, of man, into the life of man as the serpent entered into the garden. And so, we see, secondly, the serpent crushed. He says in verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Of course, the, sin entered, uh, the, the serpent entered the garden, brought temptation, and brought sin with him, and Adam and Eve fall into sin, and, and that whole situation that, that uh, we know about from Genesis chapter 3. And then as the curses are being given, the promise is made to the man and to the woman, but spoken to the serpent that, that there will be enmity between the seed of the woman, between the serpent, and there will come a time when that conflict will come to a head, and the serpent's head will be crushed, and the seed of the woman will have his heel bruised. That's the first giving of the gospel. That's the first promise of what's going to happen, that though peace had existed in creation, and yet it was broken because of the entrance of sin into the picture, yet there will come a time when the seed of the woman, who is Jesus, will crush the head of the serpent. That's how we're used to hearing it. That's how we're used to thinking about it. That is the giving of the gospel from the very moment, from the very earliest days of sin entering the world. We have God promising, I will deal with it. I will crush this thing by means of my son. And so the rest of the story of the Bible is the expectation of that. The promises, no, this is not the time, but it will come. The son will do this. The son will indeed crush the head of that serpent. We know, of course, that, that leads up to the cross. And on the cross, that's where we have the, the, the actual culmination of the conflict. It's at its most intense at that point. And of course, the, 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 the heel is bruised, meaning the son takes an injury. Jesus not just takes an injury. This isn't just nails in the hands or, or a piercing in the side. He died. So the bruising of the heel is a big deal. But in that very moment, and particularly when the son was raised, you see that, no, the, the, the wounds to him, though they were grievous, yet God has dealt with him, and the son is raised from the dead, and that serpent, what happened to him? He was utterly destroyed. His power was removed. And his, his judgment had been declared. The act that would accomplish it had been completed. That's how we're used to thinking about that serpent being crushed, but we see in this passage, we see back here in Romans chapter 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. Yeah, we know to expect that. We've been reading about that since Genesis 3. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, under your feet, church at Rome, under your feet. So there's a sense in which the battle happened, and the victory was won on the cross. But there is also a sense in which we see it played out in the life of the church, that as attack comes from the serpent upon the church, the body of Christ, as temptation comes, as false teaching, false doctrine comes to the church, the body of Christ, the God of peace will soon crush Him again crush Him visibly 
under your feet. Under your feet. This isn't just a cosmic battle that happens somewhere out there or, or somewhere back in history. It plays out in the church today as false doctrine comes to us, as temptation comes to us, as we face the opposition of the enemy. And once again, the God of peace crushes that serpent underfoot under our feet. That's the victory that He gives us. And so we, we see God's grace and our hope, which is where He finishes. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He's promising them grace. He's telling them what will happen, what He is going to accomplish, what God is going to accomplish in His church. You see, Paul is writing to this church in Rome. He's never been there before. He knows some of the people, some by reputation, some personally, some he's been in prison with and, and other things like that, but he's, not, he's never been to this church in Rome. He wants to go there, but he doesn't know when that's going to be. It will play out at some point, but he doesn't yet know. And here he is knowing, here is this ripe church in Rome. They're famous. They're doing well. Ripe for the picking for these troublemakers. But Paul can't go. Paul can't be there yet. It's going to be years before he's there. And so what does he do? He entrusts them to God's care. I can't be there, but may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. By the way, that's better than Paul being there. And so he is writing, he's encouraging himself. At the same time, he's encouraging them. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is with you. And God, the God of peace, will indeed soon crush Satan under your feet. He's telling the church, I am entrusting you to Christ. And so Paul finds comfort in that. I mean, Paul is probably a little bit like a parent who sends a child away to college or off to the military or something like that, and your heart beats a little bit faster because you, can't, you don't have them under, you know, in, in, under your, your wing anymore. They're off on their own, and who, who knows what kind of attacks might come against them and what might happen, and I'm out of control. And so the pitter-patter of your heart as they go away. Paul probably felt something like that. He says he lost sleep over the churches, concerned about the churches that were scattered all over, and he knew about all the challenges and all the conflict that was coming to them. Who will take care of that child when the child goes away to the military? The child goes away to college. The child moves away. The Lord will. You can't do it anymore, parents. I'm preaching to myself here. You can't do it anymore, parents. The Lord will do it. So Paul entrusts the Roman church to the Lord's care. And by writing it to him, he's reminding them of that so that they also will take comfort in that. Yes, Paul's not here. Yes, we don't have him on scene. And we've got this instruction, and, and they probably read it till it you know, fell apart or till they had it memorized or whatever, because that's help from the apostle. But ultimately, the message is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is with you, and God will accomplish this. So a couple points of application here. Take heart. Take heart. God will have victory in His church over the attacks of the enemy. 
He will soon trample Satan under your feet. Now, does that mean victory for any given particular church? We know of churches that, that were glorious gospel-proclaiming churches 50 years ago, and now they're anything but. But the fact is, God is at work in His church, and He will have victory. So take heart. I take heart in that, knowing that God will win the victory. And individual Christian, take heart, because God will have victory in your life too. Our Sunday school class that uh, is wrapping up, we've got one more week left of it, we went through the course of the summer, has been fabulous at pointing us to Christ, pointing us to what He has accomplished for us in justification. The fact that because of what Jesus has done, we have right standing before God, that the penalty has been paid in His death so that I don't owe the sin debt and His righteousness has been accomplished and is credited to my account. And so now, even now when I fall short, I can look back to Christ and say, yes, but He doesn't fall short. He did it perfectly. He succeeded where I failed. And, by the way, He has sent His Holy Spirit to live within me. That He is at work in me even now, and as we looked at today in Sunday school, He is at work in me to sanctify me and He will do it. The road may be long, bumpy and rocky, but for every single Christian, He will sanctify us. He is at work even now to do that. And so the victory, the trampling underfoot of the enemy that we read about here in Romans 16 and verse 20, that is what will be accomplished ultimately in the life of every Christian. If you know Christ, that is His promise to you. So look to Christ. Trust in Him. Believe in Him and find great confidence in what He has done and what He, by His Spirit within you, is doing even now. Look to Christ. There is hope there. I was able to go back years later to uh, visit the places that we had ministered back in the 90s in Russia, and I got reports from the missionaries who had stayed there about what things had been like in the intervening years, what the church was like in Russia at, at this point, and, and, uh, and whatnot. And sadly, they reported what today's passage should prepare us for. There were, there were not churches planted out of those Bible studies where we all just got to look at the Bible and say what it means to me. Churches didn't come out of that. There may have been individual Christians saved from that, but it was not the start of a new movement. It was not the planting of a church. Discernment did not grow out of that. Doctrinal clarity did not come from this. As they were placing their own opinions right next to the opinions of the next guy, and okay, well, that's, I think differently about it. There was no stability established. There was no church established. Now, I shouldn't say there was no church everywhere. Uh, in Russia. There obviously were churches planted out of that, but the, the, the realm that I got to interview people in, etc., there were not churches planted. Divisions were clear. They were abundant. That these little groups that had gotten, gotten along just fine under certain circumstances, there became an issue and they couldn't get along anymore. There was division. There were stumbling blocks placed. There were very, very few churches that came out of that. And I think the reason 
is because of a lack of this kind of view where Paul very wisely warned the church, you need to expect trouble and you need to know what it looks like when it comes. Know how they will talk, know what they're after, and know what the consequences are. And as you're wary of those things, as you're keeping a sharp eye out, as you're growing in doctrinal discernment, as you're, as you're understanding God's Word more and more and growing together as a church, you continue to trust that the God of peace will soon trample Satan under your feet. That the grace of Jesus is with you. Keep your eyes on Him. I have very, uh, I'm very confident that God has a better plan for us than that, than what I saw in Russia. God is at work in our church, and He's at work in our congregation. He's at work in you. He's ordaining all things for your good, Christian, to conform you to the image of His Son. He is even now accomplishing that. And a part of that work involves a growing in doctrinal discernment, in alertness to the motivations and methods of the enemies and to His minions. Jesus already has the cosmic victory over the serpent. He won it on the cross. And we get to see that played out as His church tramples the head of Satan even now and even here. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that Your Word teaches us wisdom teaches us to discern truth from error, teaches us to discern the consequences of error, teaches us to be able to not only live lives that are, that are uh, in, in, in light of the truth, obedient to the truth, walking with You, but also wise to the attacks of the enemy, being aware that the true doctrine of Scripture, the apostles' teaching, is always under attack. Father, I pray that you would help us to be wise in observing that, in marking those who would attack true apostolic teaching and turning them away or turning away from them. Father, help us to be wise. Thank you that we are not left to ourselves having been given great instructions and some things to learn and then left to ourselves to accomplish it, but instead... You, the God of peace, will soon trample Satan under our feet. We rejoice in that truth, and we rejoice in Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. If you want to pray with someone, there will be a family up here who would love to pray with you. Otherwise, God bless you all, and you are dismissed.